last week. And this morning, we're going to begin to look at the fourth major theme, which is called carnal liberty. It, uh, it spans over the third largest section of this book, covering about 74 verses, uh, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, and then ending at chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, so this is, a, this is a really big section. It's the third largest theme and section in the book itself. And I believe the first largest theme was in chapters 1 through 4, and then the second one was, uh, the second one is coming still. Uh, so this is, uh, it's up there. It's a big section. And what I've noticed about it so far, at least, and these things always change as I study. Uh, well, they don't always change, but most of the time they do. There seems to be six sub-themes under this meta-theme, so to speak. And I think I prefer to see them at this point as six subjects that Paul introduces in his teachings on Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And these are essentially what he introduces to the audience that's, that's reading this is th these are at least six subjects or six things that believers are free to participate in since they are no longer under the power of sin, under the penalty of the law, thanks to the work, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I noticed about these sub-themes or subjects is that there's diversity there. Uh, there isn't one that's repeating. They're all different themes. They're all different subjects. They're not all the same. And they range from like dietary liberties or dietary freedoms, which is something that a Jewish mind would have understood better than us, but dietary freedoms all the way to like even the freedom or liberty to flee from temptation, which Paul considers part of our Christian liberties, to be able to flee from the things that held us in bondage beforehand. We've been freed so we can do that. And so you've got dietary freedoms, you've got the freedom to flee temptation. You've got the freedom to glorify God. There's, there's a whole range uh, and varying range of subjects in, in this big, big section. It's really kind of uh, interesting the way it's laid out. There's total diversity here. And um, the whole section, I would say, uh, under this particular banner of, of, of liberty, it's very pastoral, so it's very simple, very practical. And that's because it is still within the context or uh, response of Paul to the Corinthians' questions. We learned in chapter 7, verse 1, that they had written a letter and sent it to him, and it had a whole list of questions in there like, you know, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? And, and so this particular section, this subject of liberty, is something they were writing about. They wanted to know if their liberty as Christians had any limits or boundaries or what exactly did it mean? What were they free to do? What were they free not to do? And so this, like the previous section, is within the context of the letter and the questions that were being asked of Paul. So Paul responds very pastorally and gives answers to their questions, and he does it rather systematically. Like there's a chronology here, I think, that if he deals with sexuality, that was the first thing on the list, and he dealt with it in the last chapter. And then when it comes to liberty, it's the next thing on the list. And so it's very, very practical, very diverse in subject matter, but very practical too, which I think is very, very helpful for us. Pastoral writings are easier for me to unfold for you, and they're easier for me to apply to my life and hopefully the spirit applying to yours. 
These folks did have questions about liberty, quite a bit actually. And they had some knowledge about it too, most did, not all. And um, the first subject that Paul deals with when dealing with the subject of liberty is food sacrificed to idols or dietary freedom. Like they were asking, like, are we free to eat this kind of food or that kind of food, something that's been sacrificed to an idol? This, this is a, a legitimate question they had. And it's difficult for us to get our minds around because we don't see much of this in the, well, I guess we see our own version of it, we don't see it like they did. Where literally people showed up with, you know, really good cuts of USDA choice beef, threw it on an altar to Molech, you know what I mean? And typically that was their children that they were throwing on the altar to Molech, but um, we don't see that in our context, but it's what they saw, it's what they participated in at one time. And so it, it makes total sense for them to be asking about these food sacrificed idols, you know. What are our limitations there? Are there any? Uh, the Greeks and Romans were polytheistic, worshiping many, many gods. Uh, they had, uh, uh, you know, pantheons of gods. You know, they'd have 50 gods in idol form in, in a pantheon or a structure. And so they were very polytheistic, worshiping a lot of different gods. They had a god for everything, like a god for the ingrown toenail. Uh, you know, they basically came up with a God for just about everything under the sun. If they had an issue, they were like, well, yeah, I know your lower back hurts, so I think it would be befitting for us to create a God of the lower back, and maybe he'll heal you. Not understanding that they had created it, uh, but this is literally the mentality. They had a, a God or a group of gods for every circumstance, every need, every activity, every consequence, they had a god of war, a, a goddess of love, typically we think of Aphrodite, a, a god even of travel, um, a goddess of justice, and, and so on and so forth, a, a goddess for hunting. Um, it, they just had one for everything. And they were not only polytheistic, they were polydemonistic, uh, believing in many, many variations of evil spirits. You know, we typically think of uh, demons and and uh, and Lucifer or the devil or Satan, and they had a lot more than just those demons and, and a Satan. They had you know very uh, a very diverse, broad spectrum of evil spirits, and uh, the way that they believed about these evil spirits is is really interesting. They thought that the air around us, the air that we breathe, is full of them, like. There's just evil spirits and, and demons and, and what have you in the air at all times, floating around, looking for someone to pulverize, to possess, or whatever. And they thought that, you know, giving food sacrifices, which were usually meat, uh, this, this was of great importance in regard to their belief of demons because they believed that the demons would go into meat they would possess meat. And if you were to ingest the meat, you would be consuming a demon and you would be possessed by the demon. So um, I'm sure this was a pretty good motivation for vegetarianism back in the first century. Like, you know what, I'll never eat bacon again because I got me a molek, you know? Well, you got heartburn, it's not necessarily, right? But they literally thought the demons were everywhere, the evil spirits were everywhere and they would go into food and they would go into meats in particular and then and then you could ingest 
the meats, and then you would have a demon in you. This is the way that they thought. And it just seems crazy to us, but it's the way they thought. Uh, they, they believed that the demons or the evil spirits were always trying to invade human beings. And that this is by MacArthur, by the way. It is believed that the evil spirits were constantly trying to invade human beings. And the easiest way to do that was for them to attach themselves to food before being eaten. So you're sitting down, you know, at the outback and a demon takes over your steak and you eat the steak and the only thing that will cure it is a blooming onion. <laughs> Literally, this is, this, is, this is what they thought. It was just nuts. And, and so the only way that these evil spirits could be removed from food was through being sacrificed to one of their gods. See, now you see, understand the connection. So food wasn't just food. It was a dwelling place for evil spirits. And the way that the food would be purified or exorcised, if you want to call it that, or be free of evil spirits was to take that meat and to sacrifice it on an altar to one of their evil spirit false gods. It doesn't make much logical sense. But this is what they thought. So the sacrifice in these pagan temples, it really served two purposes. It did gain the favor of the God that they were sacrificing to, and it also cleansed the meat from all demonic contamination. Uh, idol offerings were divided into three parts. One, you know, if you took an offering down to the temple of Diana and offered it on the altar, uh, one part was burned on the altar as, you know, sacrifice proper. The second part was given as payment to the priests who served at the temple. It's kind of like how they got their food. And then the remaining part was kept by the offerer. So if you had a big chuck roast, you would divide it into thirds, and one would go on the altar, one would go to the priest, and one would go back home into your crock pot. And the idea here is that if you did this and went through this process, you didn't have to worry about anything at all. Right? You didn't have to worry about evil spirits and the meat getting into you. You only had to be concerned, and they didn't know this at the time, was with your cholesterol. Right? They just didn't. This is, this is what they did. And what would happen is so many people in this culture and context, even in Corinth, believed in this religious system or this, I don't know what you would want to call it. It's just nuts. But so many people were in the system that they brought so much meat down to the temples that they couldn't possibly burn or consume. They just would have a lot of leftover meat. I mean, everybody was bringing their meat down for this purpose, and the priests couldn't eat all of it. They, you know, and you didn't have refrigeration. They would pack stuff with salt and try to store it for a season, but, I mean, it would just spoil. And so now what you have is some of this meat would be taken out of the temples because they just couldn't consume it all, and they would sell it in the marketplaces. You understand what's going on here in the context now? So now you go into your local Rayleigh's, and they've got, in the butcher area, uh, lots of great meat, but the, most of that meat in that department and in, on those shelves had been sold to or donated from the temples. And so you had all this meat. Now, the interesting thing about this meat is that it was very expensive, kind of like how meat is today. But use your brain for a minute and consider why it was so expensive. It was so expensive not because it was USDA prime, it was so expensive because it was thought to be cleansed of evil spirits. And so people would pay more money for meat donated from the temple system or whatever 
because they thought, okay, this meat's clear. We're good. We can eat this. I can have my spaghetti tonight. I don't have to worry about getting jacked up by an Ammonite god. So it's, this, is, this is the system. This is the context. This is the mindset. You've got meats that were offered, meats that were now sold in all these places. And people wanted these meats because, A, they were really good cuts because people always brought their best down to the temples and because they were free of all supernatural demonic activity, so to speak. And so people would go and they would buy these meats and serve them at their weddings, at their parties, at their events, at their galas, at their balls. They would, this was the sought after meat, at least among the pagans. They loved this stuff. And, you know, it just, it's crazy. And it was basically just, I would say almost, if not impossible, for a Christian believer in Corinth to avoid this subject, to avoid this way of life. You just, the chances are that if you went into a market and got meat, it had been sacrificed to a false god. It's just the way it was. You know, even if you had like a, a relative that was getting married or a longtime friend giving a banquet, uh, the Christian had to face this issue. They either had to make excuses for not attending any of those events, and we certainly know that some guy or gal couldn't do that forever because, you know, you're going to get invited to a lot of events and what, you always have the same illness, you always have the same problem. Yeah, for some of us that works. <laughs> uh, but you just couldn't do it indefinitely. So you could make up excuses for not going to these things or you were forced to eat meat that you knew had been offered as part of an offering to an idol. And some sensitive, you know, non-Jewish Gentile Christians, they basically just flat out refused to buy meat of this type. They just wouldn't have anything to do with it because it would either remind them of their pagan days where they were going down and making those offerings and, you know, the ridiculousness of their past false religion. They just didn't want anything to do with it. Kind of like maybe how a person who may have been a heavy drinker before they were saved, you know, and got kind of delivered out of that. The last place you'd find them probably at is in a bar. And so kind of a parallel here, right? It's never wise for someone who was a heavy drinker to go into a bar well, in an equal way or in a parallel way, it might not have been wise for somebody who had made all these sacrifices and done all this in, to go into a butchery. And So you had genuine, real believers that were just perplexed over this and didn't go to events and, and didn't engage in things because of their past. Maybe they thought that other Christians would see them Maybe they were okay with the participation of these things, but they thought other Christians would see them and that they would be judged for that. There's a lot of reasons why people abstained and stayed away from it. And, you know, it's all a matter of conscience, really. Uh, there were many believers, both Gentile and obviously Jewish, like Messianic Christian, Jewish Christians. They were just reluctant to even go into the homes of pagan family members or, you know, non-believing family members or relatives. Um, they were even weary of eating with a great many Christians who didn't have a problem with these meats. They didn't want to go in and just take the chance of being exposed to any of this stuff. And then on the other hand, you had some Christians that just weren't bothered by it at all. They had no problem with it at all. To them, meat was meat. 
And meat wasn't spiritual, it wasn't cosmic, it was just, it was just a good steak, man. They didn't tie or attribute anything spiritual to it. This was their thinking. They knew pagan deities didn't exist. They knew idols were false. Uh, they knew evil spirits couldn't contaminate food. They thought that was superstition. And they were of a more mature, well-grounded in God's truth kind of camp, if you want to call them that. In other words, their consciences were totally clear of the matter. I mean, they could go into the meat market and, this right here was devoted to Aphrodite, you know, and they'd come back the next week. That was delicious after I smoked it for three hours. I mean, they weren't giving praise to Aphrodite. They didn't, they, Aphrodite was an idol. It didn't mean anything. But they would, the meat was delicious. So they weren't making a spiritual connection here. So you had some who were terrified of it and wanted to stay away from it for various reasons and other Christians that were down with it. And I think that in, well, I don't think it's the reality of it. The group that Paul really sets his target on here is the group that was fine with it. That's who, I mean, he's addressing everybody in the church, but he's really kind of honing in and focusing on the group that was exercising and using its liberty to participate in these foods. That's who he's really addressing here in chapter 8. And bottom line is he totally supports their freedom to eat whatever they want because the Christian is truly free. The Christian is, is, is not going to be attacked by meat, not going to be attacked by you know, supernatural beings that are invading or possessing meat or any of that. The, the, the Christian, this Christian knows that you know, idols are nothing. They're man-made. And so he supports their freedom to, to eat this stuff. But what he also does is he challenges their lack of sensitivity toward their weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters who got hung up on these things. So that's the context. You have a, a meat-eating culture, and most of the culture was eating the meat for all the wrong reasons, but there were some Christians eating it for the right reasons, but there were weaker, less knowledgeable Christians that just didn't understand that and had a big-time problem with some of their brothers and sisters exercising this freedom. That is chapter 8 in a nutshell. And really what Paul addresses here is the insensitivity of those who know their rights. It's the enforcement. Lack of, lack of sensitivity, lack of showing love by enforcing your right to participate in something that you know is okay, but it trips up other people. That's what he's concerned with here in the chapter. And that's what he deals with here. Of course, it's a four-point sermon, at least four at this point, but it's going to take us a couple weeks. We'll do two today and... Lord willing, two next week. But two points today we'll look at. Let's look at the first one. Number one, the first thing Paul teaches these people is to be cautious with knowledge. Be cautious with knowledge. We see this in verses 1 to 3. We'll start in verse 1a. The first thing that Paul says is, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. Just stop there. We can already tell right off the bat that Paul was working his way through a list of questions one at a time when he says, now concerning food offered to idols, right? Like, okay, in the last chapter, now concerning sexuality, now he's saying, that was one on the list, now he's saying, now concerning Christian liberty or Christian uh, food sacrificed to idols. So he's just, he's going down a list of questions. This was the next question on their list. 
And I want you to notice the quotation marks there specifically. I don't know if they're uh, the quotation marks exist in all the English translations. They certainly do in the ESV, and they should be there, but you see it before the word all and at the end of knowledge. So what is Paul doing? He's actually quoting what they stated in their questions. Okay? Now concerning food offered to idols is the next subject, and he's literally quoting them. They were the ones who talked about how everyone has a type of knowledge. They were the ones who used that phrase, and now he's quoting it back to them. And what he's essentially doing is he's agreeing that all of us, that is all Christians in general, do in fact possess knowledge. He is writing to specifically the group that had the more knowledge and understood the freedom because they understood that everyone has some level of knowledge. There were some in this church that didn't seem to understand that all Christians have been given some level of knowledge. And that's primarily the group that was weaker on this subject and didn't know they could participate in these things. But Paul is quoting them back to them. He's quoting them to them in agreement. He understands that that. All Christians possess some level of knowledge because intrinsic or uh, in the, the DNA of salvation, even at a, in a, in a base level, there is some knowledge there of what Christ has done. Right? So every Christian has some level of knowledge and some possess a large amount of knowledge. You know, they've been in the faith longer and they've been in their... I mean, you could be in the faith for 50 years and not know diddly squat because you don't spend time in your word, but... Point being, they've spent time in the Word. They've spent time in prayer. They've spent time in fellowship with other believers. And as iron sharpens iron, believers are pouring into each other. There's some that have larger amounts of knowledge. There's some that have medium amounts of, medium amounts of knowledge. And there's like American evangelicals that have almost no knowledge at all of Scripture. Just very, very small amount of baseline level. But his point is that he's agreeing with their statement that all possess knowledge. He knows this. He understands this. And, of course, the group that he's really addressing is in the first camp, the one that has a higher level of knowledge. They had a larger knowledge base or more knowledge. They demonstrated the fact that they had more knowledge by how they didn't get hung up on eating food sacrificed to idols. That shows that they had more knowledge. They understood the nature of what an idol is. They understood the nature of eating. They understood those things. And so they had a broader, larger, or deeper knowledge than those who didn't. Logically, right? This is the way the text works. This particular group, I call them kind of the more knowledge group. They knew from a scriptural standpoint that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That's what defiles a person. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Those, those are the words of Jesus. Matthew 12, 34 and Matthew 15, 11. They understood that what goes in, it, it's irrelevant. It's what comes out. And it's not food that's coming out. It's what we're saying because that's reflective of what's in our heart. So they understood what I take in, it's, it's not causing anything here. So they had the scriptural standpoint there. They understood from a, a spiritual standpoint that meat is meat. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. Some cuts are better than others. They didn't judge a meat by its spirituality. They judged meats by its quality, like we do. They understood this. They understood that they are not under the law, but under grace, which means that eating foods formally prohibited by the Mosaic law, like shellfish and bacon, was totally permissible for a Christian. And equally, eating foods that had been offered to deaf 
dumb idols was also permissible. Romans 6.14, 1 Corinthians 10.23. Uh, this particular group knew that they were free to eat whatever they want. That's the sermon title. That's the knowledge they possessed. They had a scriptural and spiritual knowledge of these things. And it was deeper and broader and wider than that of others. It is safe to say that this group had a much better grasp of Christian liberty than others in the Corinthian church. And they were, of course, because they had that knowledge, they were exercising it freely. They were going down to Rayleigh's and getting the meat, and they weren't worried about any spiritual consequences. They were just grilling the meat and loving it. And I think because we don't get hung up on meat like this. We don't have the meat sacrificed. I guess if we really wanted to think about it, maybe it is somehow. Uh, but not like this. We don't have temples where people are going down and doing this. The only temples that people are worshiping in or worshiping, period, are themselves. Uh, but so we don't, we don't really have this playing out in our culture. But maybe a good parallel would be the use of alcohol. And, and I don't want you to think that I'm going to pick on you because you like to have some beers and good whiskeys and stuff like that. Heaven, heaven knows I, I, I enjoy those things from time to time, not as much anymore, but, uh, but I think that's a good parallel for us, right? It's something that we can freely participate in, but it's also something that can trip people up around us big time. So that's a better parallel for us than meat sacrificed to idols. And I think that alcohol is a reasonably hot topic or subject in a great many churches. I really do, especially among the more strict charismatic assemblies, you know, where, you know, booze is the devil, you know, or maybe some of the more traditional Baptist congregations, you know, it just, it's just evil, you know, spirits are evil, even liquor spirits are evil. Kind of like maybe like dancing too, believe it or not, that's still a, you know, be careful with fornication because it can lead to dancing. That's a Southern Baptist mindset. The, the evil of the two is dancing. <laughs> it's like, you know, Footloose? Remember Footloose, the 80s movie? I mean, it sounds comical, but it's actually true. Footloose? True story, not really, but certainly close to the mark because this is the mindset in some churches. Like, it's just, it's just evil. For some Southern Baptists, dancing is the unpardonable sin. The way they worship to any song is... You know, you put your hand up, Satan! I mean, literally. And alcohol is viewed this way. I'm not trying to pick on Baptists, a little bit, but <laughs> this is the mindset. And I think alcohol is way up there with some. It's just, it's just evil. It's just wicked. Nothing good can come from it. It destroys lives, which is true that it can destroy lives. Uh, and I think that an, an outright blatant cross-the-board restriction uh, of things like alcohol probably could be the result of not really understanding the liberty that the Christian has. Uh, sure, there's dangers in these sorts of things. I get it. And if somebody errs on the side of caution, praise the Lord. But I think there's a great many that just cast that subject away and critically judge those who participate in it in the church and it's really coming from the same perspective as the weaker brothers and sisters in this church. They just don't understand their liberty. There's an ignorance of the liberty. 
If a person has a, a, a flat-out no-drinking conviction, maybe it's not because they've had problems with it or something else, but they just, I just don't think it has any place in the Christian's life no matter what, and they're not basing that on past experiences or CDC statistics or anything else. What they usually do, this type of person, and they're in churches, is they, they try to bind everyone else to that belief, and we call that conscience binding. That's legalism. It happens. Point being here is that Christians are free. They can freely exercise and participate in those things. They can enjoy a cold beer, a delicious, you know, Napa Valley glass of wine. I can't afford it, but they can have a cocktail. They can dance like David, 2 Samuel 6, 14. He danced before the Lord in almost no clothes with all of his might, threw down like he was like Michael Jackson out on the dirt road. He was just throwing down, you know. And I, that's a favorite text I like to use when people like come at dancing so hard. I, I don't know why I would ever preserve or protect dancing. I can't dance. But, you know, I always point to David dancing like a fool. And they tend to say, well, that was David and that was a different time. It, it's not the participation in alcoholic beverages that's sinful. See, the, the mindset for the legalist is that it is sinful and you should not do that, but it's not sinful. It's drunkenness that's sinful because that leads you down all sorts of paths and into all sorts of trouble. Galatians 5.21, it's drunkards that don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty strict prohibition. People who just live in a perpetual state of drunkenness, that's just escapism is what it is. They don't have the kingdom because they should be trusting in the Lord, not in vodka. But I would say this, that we should be very careful when partaking of alcoholic beverages. There should be great care because they can be habit-forming. If you have an addictive type of personality, you probably should stay away from it. Uh, during my study time this last week, I stumbled onto a blog post that literally had 75 scriptures laid out systematically, you know, 1 to 75, and they were literal scriptures warning against drinking. It's probably Southern Baptists that put it together, I don't know. But while scanning this list, I was just kind of, you know, yeah, I think we all know this and the drunkenness and the dangers and, you know, I was kind of going through it, maybe looking for something that stood out and Matthew 24, 48 to 51 did catch my eye and, and rather than just kind of trying to read it and exposit it, because we're expositing in 1 Corinthians 8 right now, if we boil down that text, what it is saying is this, and I found this to be very, very interesting, the use of alcohol, right, context, a drinking servant is unprepared for the Lord's return. Certainly can be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say a drunk, a drunken. I mean, what, what, what's being conveyed in the text isn't a drunken saint. It's one who just drinks perpetually. He's always drinking. Is not going to be prepared for the Lord in his return. And I think we would all agree that, that there's a strong possibility for that because what does alcohol do? It dulls the senses. So the potential danger is there. The fact of the matter is the Lord expects his people to be watchful and ready at all times. Luke 12, 35 to 40. How can you do that if you're always drinking? Hmm? That's just a 
thing to tease out and to consider. Right? I mean, an outright prohibition of such things, not based on really any kind of scriptural evidence, or maybe it is slightly, but it's really not the context or the meaning of the text. That can be a kind of legalism, but there could be some wisdom if you're careful with it from scripture. Like, I think the last thing I or my brothers and sisters in the Lord, you guys want to do is not be ready for the Lord's return. And if we're saucing it up all the time, I don't know how we're ready. He comes back and, you know, we, we literally toast him in that moment with our vodka. That just doesn't seem very right. So, outright prohibition, that can be legalism. Careful participation, that can be part of your liberty. But you need to be ready for the Lord no matter what. So, that right there, being ready for the Lord and the other reasons, you know, with it being dangerous and all that, that to me constrains the liberty a little bit at least causes me to be mindful of my liberties. My liberties aren't there so I can get drunk and act a fool and not be ready for Jesus. That's an abuse of the liberty. You don't want to turn around. God gives you liberty and freedom in the finished work of Christ and turn around and use those things or abuse those things or use them against Him. Because now you're smacking the giver in a sense. Why would you do that? Why would we do that? So there's some wisdom in being cautious. So everybody has knowledge. Next verse, verse 1b. Listen to what he says. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay, this is the first indication that there's some negativity here with his response because he's responding to some negativity in this church. Notice again the quotation marks around the word Knowledge, he is what? Once again, he is quoting them. They wrote this out. They're asking these questions, and he's quoting them. But this time he does, in fact, it's a little negative, but he issues a warning. He's saying that knowledge should be handled with caution. Why? Because it can puff up. In other words, it can make those who possess it prideful. That's what it means to be puffed up. It means to have an inflated chest and a higher view of yourself. That's pride. And, and this was, in fact, happening with the more knowledgeable group, the one that was exercising their freedom. They became puffed up, and their pride was clearly seen in how they were defending their right to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's how you see them being as prideful. When some weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters saw them ingesting these foods, those weaker brothers and sisters, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters, called them into question, asked them, what are you doing? Do you not understand that that food was offered, that meat was offered to Aphrodite? I don't think Christians are supposed to have anything to do with idols or false gods or the worship of them, so I, I don't think that you should be eating that meat. Now, one could say it's not their right or business asking their brothers and sisters those questions, but... That's besides the point. They saw one group in the church freely participating, doing it in public, doing it out in the open, and they had a problem with it. And the parallel for us would be for there be, to be some kind of a gathering where some of the gathering or some Christians are drinking and some aren't. And then maybe some Christian walks over to the ones who are drinking saying, hey, you're drinking. I don't think you should be drinking. They were literally saying to that more knowledgeable group who was exercising their freedom, why are you eating this meat? That meat right there was sacrificed to Jupiter. See the J stamp on it? What are you doing? I don't, I don't 
I don't. Did you get that at Rayleigh's, or did you actually go ahead and get that at the temple? Right? Talk about a party killer. Somebody comes over and says those things to you. You're like, I'm just going to go home. But Paul doesn't really put the problem on the concerned group, but on the way the others responded to them. You would think, hey, hold on a second. They have the liberty and freedom to do this. Silence! No. No, that's not who he goes against here. He goes against the other group that was doing it. That's what makes this passage so challenging. You see, what they were doing is instead of taking what the weaker group was saying into consideration and, and just maybe choosing to err on the side of maintaining their convictions and consciences instead of being sensitive in that way and maybe abstaining from those foods for that night or that time or at the wherever they were, instead of doing that, they pridefully dismissed them. Oh, yeah, we can eat whatever we want. We're in Christ. We have freedom. I can drink beer if I want to. I can have a cocktail. I don't, I don't, I, you're just a legalist. They dismissed them. I just sent them packing. You can't tell us what we can and cannot do. We get our orders from Scripture. And in their defense of their liberty and ultimate rejection of this weaker, less knowledgeable group, what did they do? We don't see it in our text. We see it a little later. But they wounded the consciences of the weaker, less knowledgeable group and caused them to stumble. And Paul says, and to be destroyed. Woe. Verse 9, verse 12, verse 13. Ah, oh, man. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that something so simple, the free exercise of a liberty gained through the work of Christ, done right, brings glory to God, who would have thought that that particular subject could stir such a hornet's nest in this church and cause such trouble? I think both groups are at fault. One is ignorant and doesn't understand its rights and doesn't understand it shouldn't be going around trying to bind people up. But that's not who Paul addresses here. Who he really addresses is the group that says, to heck with you. She must understand the purpose of scriptural knowledge. The purpose of knowledge in general, but I would say mostly of scriptural knowledge. The purpose of it is to inform and educate that the man of God becomes mature and equipped for every good work, 2 Tim 3.17. That's the purpose of knowledge. Even the knowledge of your liberty is for that purpose. Mm. Knowledge is not granted by the Spirit to bolster pride, to puff us up. It's not given and granted for the purpose of, of, of being used as a bludgeon against either unbelievers or believers who have a weaker knowledge base. Truth and pride are incompatible, Proverbs 16, 5. But truth and grace go hand in hand. John 1, 14, he is full of grace and truth, speaking of Jesus. And his people should be equally, or well, not equally, because I don't know how that's possible. He's divine, but we should have a measure of it. Grace and truth. The end result of our knowledge and all knowledge that we possess, especially scriptural knowledge, which is way above all other things. It is the thing that shames the wise of this world and all that. The end result of our knowledge should be, as Paul said, love. 
And what does love do according to Paul in this text? It destroys people. No, that's what knowledge does. It builds up. Love builds up. There's the difference. You see, the more knowledgeable group was mature in knowledge, right? They had more knowledge than others. But they were infants when it comes to love. Mmm. Mm. They had forgotten that the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Oh, I can preach the word. I can do this. I can do that. Anything done without love is hip-hop in heaven. Bad music. You see, treating the weaker, less knowledgeable group with contempt and dismissing their concerns, not even taking for a moment their weakness and loving them because they're weaker and being patient and doing what they should have done with them, thoroughly and totally unloving. And at that moment, this higher knowledge that they possessed became utterly Useless the moment they violated the second greatest commandment to love thy neighbor, Matthew 12, 31. It doesn't matter what they know. If you can't put it into love, then it's worthless. And for them, for the group that had the more knowledge, in that moment, loving thy neighbor meant abstention. Preserving the weak or less knowledgeable group. It meant sacrificing their liberties. God cares more about believers than beef. And in that moment, they cared more about beef than believers. And they sinned, and they sinned mightily. This is a grievous sin here. Mm. It meant sacrificing their liberties. Likewise, and but that's what they should have been ready to do. They should have been ready to abstain. They should have been ready to preserve. Likewise, we ought to be, they should have been ready to sacrifice our liberties. Likewise, we should be ready and willing to sacrifice our liberties for the people of God. The lives of believers have eternal value. Our Christian liberties have temporal value. God cares more about Christians than cocktails. And that's not easy to remember when you're on three cocktails, is it? You see? You see how this works? Mm. I, I'm, I'm, I, I felt like, you know, I guess there were some train crashes lately. I felt like they crashed into my office as I was studying this because I was so convicted because I have just been loose as a goose in years past. Not considering you or others. Like this more knowledgeable group. Verse 2, and, and this is just, this is classic Paul. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Mm. I have a love-hate relationship with the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I love him. And then when he says stuff like that, well, I shouldn't say I hate him, but 
because if I say I hate them, then I hate the truth. But the fact of the matter is there are times where I don't like the truth because it aims to shred me. This is a rebuke. Paul is telling the more knowledgeable group that you are not as knowledgeable as you think you are. Mm. He's saying your knowledge is deficient. You do not know as you ought to know. That's what he's saying. How was it deficient? Well, it produced pride instead of love. Ah, man. In verse 3, Paul is saying that if one is loved by God, you know, God has set his affection on the person, and that person responds, because God loves us first, right? God loves that saint, that person. He makes them a saint. He loves them, and they respond in love to God. He is saying that that person, he or she, they will also love other believers whom God loves. In other words, if a person claims to have genuine, a genuine love relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they will have love for others, especially the brethren. 1 John 5.1. And the more knowledgeable group, they basically displayed no love when it enforced liberty, its liberty, and sent the less knowledgeable group packing. It showed no loving concern for those weaker brothers and sisters. That's the problem. When we do that, we act like we do not know the God of love. We act like we have not been touched by him, transformed by him. We act like we're not being sanctified by him. We certainly act like we're nothing like him. And we do the exact same thing when we insist upon our freedoms and cause others to stumble. If our behavior inflicts harm, we are misusing our liberty. It's that simple. It doesn't matter how lawful something is, how legal something is. It doesn't matter how scripturally okay it is. If it trips up a weaker, less knowledgeable brother or sister, we have failed to love. And now we're unlike the one who loves us who is in heaven. Love trumps liberty. Always. J. Mac wrote, the truly well-rounded Christian thinks and acts in two ways, conceptually and relationally. He has the ability to understand biblical truths and the ability to relate them to people, to himself and to others. He has knowledge plus love because love is the medium through which truth is to be communicated. Ah, what a great quote. That's why I put it in your bulletin. So you've got this group that had all this knowledge and exercising its freedoms and there was a weaker group there that didn't quite understand those things and had come and questioned them and they were quickly dismissed as something probably called Pharisees or something, who knows. And Paul is telling this group what you've done is wrong and it's sinful and you don't know as much as you think you know. And since you claim to know God and to be loved God and to have love for God, you ought to love your weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters rather than show them hatred. That's what's being said here. But ultimately, it's about being cautious with knowledge because knowledge can puff up and get us to a place where we think that we're th theologically superior to others or we're going we're gonna to play with that freedom and we don't care what others say the danger lies in the handling of knowledge. That's where it begins, and that's the point. 
Let's move to the second point. That was the first point. Let's move to the second. And this is a very, very interesting next point. I love it. Number two, be correct in your theology. Verses four to six, and we start at four. This is addressed to the more knowledgeable group, but I think primarily to the less knowledgeable group because they bear responsibility in this too. Let's look at verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Stop there. Paul demonstrates once again that he's in agreement with the more knowledgeable group. He's quoting their statements verbatim about idols. They had said in their questions, hey, Paul, we, we're pretty sure that idols have no real existence. What's your take on that? And now Paul is answering in his response to them in this wonderful epistle. He's saying an idol has no real existence. You're right. Absolutely 100%. It is nothing more than a product of human imagination. It is make-believe. Now, this group here with their question to Paul and the point they're making here, they clearly they were aligned with the scriptures on at least this doctrinal point. They were theologically correct that an idol is nothing. It has no substance. Paul's affirming them here. There was, however, a group that was theologically incorrect. And that, of course, would be the weaker, less knowledgeable group that put up the front and went against this other group and said, you shouldn't be doing this. And what they were doing through this resistance and through the rebuking of these more knowledgeable brothers and sisters, what they were doing was giving credibility to the idols. Think about Use your head and think. If I make a case against something that should not have a case because it's nothing, I've just made that something something, haven't I? That was about the most confusing thing I've said in 11 years of preaching at this church. That was like George Costanza logic, which never makes sense. What I'm saying is that we can inadvertently give credit to something where no credit is due. By being afraid of something, we give it value. By correcting others based on it, when it has no substance, we give it substance. That's the point. Does that make sense? All right, let's not go back. They, they were giving idols some level of value and credibility by thinking that contact with the foods and things that were offered to those idols could be somehow spiritually perilous, right? You're, you're eating stuff sacrificed to a false god. That, that's dangerous. You shouldn't do that. You just gave value to the things sacrificed or to the false god itself. But what Paul is saying here to them is, how can an idol hurt us when it has no real existence? How can it inflict harm upon you when it's nothing? That's what he's saying. He is now teaching the less knowledgeable group. He's trying to give them an improved or better or correct theology on the matter because they're making a big deal about these idols when they really shouldn't be because the idols aren't anything. See the point? He's teaching these folks, everyone in the church, but particularly the weaker group now, that idols are nothing. They have no real existence, meaning they have no life, they have no, no power, no, no spirituality. They are not God. God is God. And he says, and there is no God but one. Quit ascribing some kind of deity to idols that don't have deity. You're giving them credit and they, no credit is due there. 
Don't fear those things. That's, that's like fearing a rock. What are you doing? Well, it looks like a totem pole. It's scary looking. Well, maybe it's scary looking, but go get a chainsaw and we'll do it in. You know how God dealt with the idols of, of ancient Israel? He, he had them chopped down and used his firewood. Just read that the other day. And I was like, that's, that's how you get a good fire going. You take an Asherah pole, which the Israelites and everyone worshipped. It was a pole that represented sexuality. And you, you cut the stupid thing down and you, you get a log splitter and you cut it up and then, you, and then you throw it on the altar of God and set it ablaze. And then you offer real sacrifices to the one true God. You see, but they're fearful of these things and now telling others you shouldn't participate in those things. There's real danger there. Was there danger in ancient Israel with all the idols? No, the idols had no intrinsic danger. The danger was in what they were committing against their God. They were offending God by that allegiance. God is who would destroy them, not the idols. They have no life. They have no power. They are not God. There is no God but one Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Idols are deaf, dumb, and mute. This is exactly what is taught in Psalm 115, 5 to 7. And in the very next verse, it says that not only are idols deaf, dumb, and mute, but those who make them and worship them are deaf, dumb, and mute. 115, verse A. 8, not A. Point being, the idols have no real existence, point being that meat sacrificed to an idol is, whoa, meat. There's nothing cosmic. There's nothing spiritual about it. And as I said, it might have been just really, really good meat, the prime stuff, because the Corinthians were in the business of bringing down the good stuff. You're not taking down the cruddy pork chops. You take the good stuff. People brought their best animals and best cuts to those pagan temples. It's amazing that pagans did a better job worshiping their false gods than the Israelites did worshiping the true gods sometimes by bringing the animal, the tripod animal that's missing a leg and has no eyes and, here we go, here's my best. Oh, you know, it's like God has to instruct them, don't, don't, don't bring that to me. And these people brought the good stuff. The weaker, less knowledgeable group needed to grow, needed to develop their biblical theology of idols so they could jettison those fears and align themselves with the rest of the church or at least with the more knowledgeable group. You know what Paul's doing here is he's ascribing some fault to the less knowledgeable group. They go around pulverize people in the church who are exercising their freedom based on ignorance. So it's not just the fault of those who have the knowledge and say, I don't, I'm not going to listen to you. That's a wrong attitude. That's not loving. But really what needs to happen here too is we need to teach this group to love and to be sacrificial, but we need to teach this group that idols have no existence. Hello, hello, what are you doing? Right? So there's dual fault here. You know, if a person has been in the church for eons and, and they have the exact same theology of, of, of a subject as, as, as 30 years ago and they were wrong 30 years ago and 30 years later they're still wrong. It's time to grow! You're still worried about Footloose? Let me show you something. 
well, that's unloving. Well, let me sit down and talk to you about Footloose. That, that would be more loving. Right? You, you can't stay in a conscience, an ignorant conscience-binding mode the rest of your faith walk. You shouldn't. You can have real reasons for abstaining from those things. History, struggle with it. Stay away. Stay away from the flashing neon sign. Get out of there. Don't go near that. You know, there's reasons. But, you know, just based on sheer ignorance of not understanding that, that you as a, a Christian have liberties and, and you, you just want to pile on the legalism on others. That's wrong. You need to grow to. Both of you are wrong. And that's why Paul is, is aiming at both now. The weaker, less knowledgeable group needed to grow and develop. They needed to understand what idols are. They are nothing. Get rid of the fears. Align yourselves with those who are more mature. They're more mature for a reason. Maybe they've spent more time in the Word than you have. I don't know. I don't know why people turn out the way they do. But the point is, until the less knowledgeable, weaker group reached that level of being comfortable with those things, understanding their liberty and all that, until they got there, the more knowledgeable group is being exhorted in this text to don't enforce your liberties and abstain from such foods, at least while you're around others. Preserving the weaker brothers and sisters was to be a priority for them. For that group, their highest priority at this point because that's where they're really at fault. And I would say it should be our priority too. Again, love trumps liberty. Verses 5 to 6. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, and for whom all things are for whom, good Lord. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, <laughs> through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I probably should have got a NASB on that verse. <laughs> the ESV guys were like, ah, just go with it, Sam. It's just the way it's worded is, it's probably just me. This is the problem. Now I'm like an auctioneer. What Paul is saying, he is saying that he observed really the great extent of idolatry in Corinth with all the many gods that were being worshipped. Remember, he went there and planted a church. He preached the gospel there. He had seen it. And he does not ascribe any kind of divinity to them as if they were legitimate expressions of God. On the contrary, he says, what I witnessed there and what you're saying here, I, I agree with, but they're just so-called gods. That's his phrase. This phrase was used to describe something that was popularly but erroneously affirmed. The terms gods and lords are, once again, direct quotations from the Corinthian letter. Paul is agreeing with the more knowledgeable group on their assessment. Yeah, the community is just filled with all sorts of gods that really aren't gods. That's what they're saying. He agrees. Paul is, they are saying there are indeed many gods and lords in Corinth. Right? They don't believe they're literal gods and lords, but they're saying there's just many variations of this stuff here. And Paul's saying, amen, I've seen that idolatry with my own eyes. That's all he's saying. And his response was intended to prepare his readers for verse 6, where he continues to unpack a proper theology of idols by juxtaposing them with the true God and true Lord. 
He is saying, in my little paraphrase, there are many so-called gods and lords in Corinth, but for us Christians there is but one God, the Father, who is the creator of all things and for whom we exist. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, and he is the agent of all that is created and the one through whom we have our existence or life. That's what he's saying. Yeah, it's a community filled with that stuff, but as Christians, we know the truth about it. There's one God, one Lord. There's not many gods, many lords. And we should see verse 6 really as a teaching tool, I think. Paul was teaching the more knowledgeable group how to properly exposit the subject because their approach was wrong. They were utilizing Christian liberty in their educational efforts, which came across as self-seeking. Just think about that for a moment. If somebody has an issue and your approach to it is, I'm free to do this, does that not sound self-seeking and selfish? Is that going to be a less believable argument for something? Yes, and that's how they came across. Their liberty was under attack. They sought to defend and articulate their liberty. That is a wrong approach because it makes you seem self-seeking. I have the right to drink. Sounds pretty foolish to me. If anyone told me that, I'd say, you have the right to also be a bonehead. Just think of how it sounds. This is their approach, and it's wrong. What they should have presented to the weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters was what Paul presents here in the text. The juxtaposition of idols with the true God and true Lord. Lovingly developing the weaker, less knowledgeable group's theology of idols, God and Christ, that would have been a way better argument than we have the right to do this. Focusing on Christian liberty was, as I like to say, adventures in missing the point. Weaker saints are less likely to embrace their God-given freedoms because they honestly, and I say this with all the love and sensitivity in my heart, because they have a smaller view of God. That's a fact. The Corinthians had a high view of idols, which is why they were fearful and why they were resistant. What they needed was to switch it and have a very low view of idols and a very high view of God. That's where the real change comes in. Not by arguing, I have the right to do it. The antidote for every one of our weaknesses every weakness that we possess, every weakness that we struggle with, the antidote for our every weakness is a higher view of God. Always! Always! That casts out all fear. And that's not what they were employing here. A higher view of God puts everything else in its proper perspective. Amen? Why do we struggle with fear? Low view of God. Why do we worry about finances? Low view of God. Why do we worry about COVID, government indoctrination? I mean, high, low view of God. Everything, you could trace everything back to a low view of God. Arminianism, low view of God. Very low. Man, 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 God. Sorry. It's truth. Even if it sounds mean, I'm not trying to be mean. You see, when you're 
theology of God, by the grace of God, is raised, idols become nothing. They have no real existence. Amen? Pagan temples become wasted real estate. Meat becomes meat. <laughs> eating is eating. <gasps> you ate a spirit. I ate a jalapeno. It feels like a spirit. <laughs> eating. <laughs> it's my fault. You see, this should have been the educational focus of the more knowledgeable group, right? I tell you what, we've got some brothers and sisters here in our church that are struggling with this. Let's, and how do you, how do you help anyone really contemplate or understand the magnificence and magnitude of God? That's a work and that's a, that's a futile effort, period, but I, I think I'll at least give it a shot. There is but one God and one Lord. There's a star. That means idols are nothing. You see what he's doing here? This should have been the educational focus, not Christian liberty. So Paul is teaching right here. It's a teaching tool. Here's how you unpack the subject. Don't go at it from the perspective of liberty. Go at it from the bigness of God and the futility of idols. Don't give them credibility. Don't give them anything because they're nothing. God is everything. They are nothing. That's his approach. But he was also teaching the weaker, less knowledgeable group these things directly, right? He is. He was working to develop their theology and expand their view of God and Christ, which would, by default, transform and decrease their view of idols, reducing them down to where they belong. They are nothing. Big view of God. Idols go away. Meat is meat. Paul is, Paul's like, you know what, more knowledgeable group? I'll help you a little bit on this because I know what it's like to have a bunch of other brothers and sisters come to you and go, ah, what are you doing? I know what it's like, so I'll teach them too. Let's wrap it up. I would say it's perfectly fine for, for believers, brothers, sisters, saints, Christians, with a deeper understanding of Christian liberty to lovingly share their wisdom with maybe younger or just less knowledgeable saints. I think it's okay to do that. It's a, it's a doctrine. It's a, it's a theology. It's a doctrine that should be exposited and should be shared and should be discussed. Provided that we do not inadvertently lead them down the slippery slope of alcohol abuse or some other vice. Unlike Cain, we are our brother's keepers. You want to get someone hooked on booze because of your liberty? Yeah, you're going to love that for a long time. Got to be careful with this stuff. I suppose the same would be true of those meat-sacrificed idols. They have no intrinsic value or worth, but after a while, somebody, because they eat the steak all the time, they now love Aphrodite that doesn't exist. That's a problem. Same thing can happen with the booze. You know what I think we should use our Christian freedom for and focus on? Drinking and eating bacon? No. Teaching each other the Word of God. 
that's a better use of our liberty? Be a, a teacher of the word, not a connoisseur, and a reviewer of potentially deadly delights. I've already been down this road. I just went down it with the craft beer and the high-end whiskeys and the stogies and all that. I just, I went down it because I had the freedom to do it. And I'm not on that path anymore and I'm not going back to it because I finally realized that I have to set a better example. A few years ago, I had a, a guy I knew from way back in my skateboarding days. I mean, this is a long time ago, you know. Tony Hawk, yeah! <laughs> and, and just a few years ago, I had contact with a guy that I knew from back then. I had contact with him on Instagram. I hadn't heard from him. His name's Eddie. I hadn't heard from him in probably at least 30 years. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> Long story short, he had completely decimated and blown his life and family apart through alcohol abuse. During the time that I'm in the church preaching and loving the Lord and following the Lord and, and then doing a lot of really dumb and crazy things before that, but not ultimately destructive, during my lifetime, I was kind of headed in a direction and he was headed right down in the depths of Hades the whole time. So sad. But now, when he reached out to me, he's following Jesus and he's not hitting the sauce anymore. Praise God. But he felt that it was wrong for me as a pastor to post beer pics on my social media page. And my first impulse was to be just like that more knowledgeable group and to go ahead and school him on the finer arts of Christian liberty. That was my first impulse. Oh, I'll let him know a thing or two as he's unfolding how destructive paragraph after paragraph, lots of misspelling. <laughs> We're skateboarders, what do we do? <laughs> and he's just unfolding how destructive, and, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I need to help this guy understand that it's perfectly okay for me to do this, and that was my first impulse. And then I started to realize, even in that moment, that he was right. He was right. I was, I was setting a bad example. I was the more knowledgeable group creating stumbling blocks for weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters, whoever, whoever was looking at that, especially Eddie. Of course, instead of enforcing my right, just after a few moments of pondering this and remembering, I think somewhere in Scripture what I'm doing is wrong. It was 1 Corinthians 8. I didn't know exactly where it was at the moment, but I knew there was something about creating stumbling blocks, and I was, I was wrong, especially at a pastoral level. And he's just like, what's a pastor doing drinking alcohol at all, and why are you putting this on here, right? And I just realized, I, 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 I'm the man. He was Nathan, and I was David. And I was broken. And I, I apologized and went and took down anything and everything booze, cigar related. Just took it all down and got rid of it. You know, like the Corinthians, we are under grace and we possess the same liberties. We are a free people. 
but we must remember that love trumps liberty. If the enjoyment of our liberties causes weaker saints to stumble, like with Eddie, the loving thing to do would be to either set those freedoms aside altogether or practice them in privacy, maybe at home. But listen carefully. Practicing our freedoms in the privacy of our own homes isn't automatically safer. Not if you have little eyes and ears present. You better watch your tail. Mm. Our kiddos, they watch us, they learn from us, they mimic us, they emulate us. You see, not to beat you up, guilty. Drinking at home, it might prevent outsiders from stumbling, but it can cause insiders to stumble, our own children. And one of the most haunting warnings to come from the lips of Jesus is seen in Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a, a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Oh, my goodness. Now, I think that we would all agree that the last thing any of us would want to do is to cause a little one to stumble. Are you kidding me? I didn't even want to do that as an unbeliever. I didn't want to hurt kids. I never believed in abortion. I never supported that. I never, I was never into that. Never. And yet, if we keep and consume alcohol in our homes, the potential for alcohol-related stumbling with our kids, it goes way, way up. Especially when our kids get older. According to the CDC, there is a relationship between youth and adult drinking. Adolescents of parents who regularly drink alcohol are more likely to drink it themselves. Statistically speaking, that is true. And since our little ones are always watching us and learning from us and trying to emulate us, we should be extra cautious and careful with how we practice those liberties at home. Don't think that home is safe, not if you have little ones. Do you really want to catch your child drinking well underage? Did he learn it from you? You know, statistically, that's what happens. I'm just saying that we have a mindset of Christian liberty. I get it. We have freedoms. And we say, I'm, I'm going to be really careful with how I do these things out and about because I don't want to cause any brothers and sisters to stumble. I'll practice them at home. But at home, you might have the tiniest of brothers and sisters. Be mindful of the example you set for them.